Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Curtis Anderson. By way of introduction, Curtis is a BYU law professor starting in 2015. Um, He focuses on corporate law, and he's in his fifth year there at BYU. Prior to that, he spent 20-plus years in private practice in the Dallas area and maybe other areas. Um, He's been a YSA bishop. And he, like me, have kind of been um, someone drawn to this space without a natural connection, um, in the sense neither of us have LGBTQ children. And Curtis now um, serves on the board of Encircle. And Curtis and his wife, Margie, have two kids, two grandkids. And this will be a podcast, kind of a two-part podcast. It'll be Curtis's journey um, as an active LDS man, um, just stepping in the space of wanting to meet the needs of LGBTQ children, and then um, joining Encircle and serving on the board of Encircle. So we'll hear about Encircle. I think it'd be good for our listeners to understand the mission of Encircle and what it's reaching, who it's reaching, and and the way it's expanding along the Wasatch Front. I'm deeply supportive of Encircle. I believe they're saving lives and a um, a needed resource in our community. Is that okay for an introduction, Curtis? Sounds great. Thanks, Richard. Tell us just, I want to make sure I got your years before BYU. Just tell our listeners where you lived um, and what your jobs were before you joined BYU. We lived in in Dallas, the Dallas area for almost 21 years. That's where most of my my private practice occurred. I did start in Salt Lake for, uh, spent a couple of years in Salt Lake, then moved to Dallas. We moved to Dallas with the idea that we'd be there for two to three years. That was sort of the original deal I cut with Margie. And that two to three years morphed into 21 and we just <laughs> loved it. It's just, it really is sort of home to us. And we are, um, it was, it was hard to leave, but it, while, while I was in Dallas, I spent 16 years in private practice. I ended up most of that time spent in a very large um, law firm with offices all around the world. I was in the Dallas office. And after my time at that firm, I ended up moving for about five or six years into a a position of general counsel of a company. And, and so, you know, between the, between the two of them, you know, it was a, it was a good, it was a good run at being in outside of academia. So in 2015, we had the chance to, to move back to Utah and accept a position at the BYU law school was not an easy decision. It was a, a little, you know, there were some risks involved on just starting brand new, but we, it felt like a right thing to do, and it, it's been a great move for us. We've, we've loved it. I, I, to be frankly honest, I was, uh, or to, just to be honest, I was a little nervous moving back to Utah County. And um, I just loved the big city, loved the vibrancy. I, I was just one of a handful of active members of the church in my old job, and I really enjoyed that dynamic. I, there's, uh, it really was a fun place to work. I just loved the dynamic of faith and and being um, um, in the in the in the very small minority, and so moving to Utah, we had a little bit of reservations, but it is it's been a great move. We have loved it. I have loved being back in Provo. I love living in in the Provo area. We love the mountains. We love hiking, and so it's it, and I just love being on campus. I think BYU's. I've always um, really been grateful for my chance to go to BYU, and I've really enjoyed being back amongst the students. It's great. Um, how did you connect with BYU? Did they reach out to you and have an open faculty position or did you express an interest in potentially teaching at BYU? 
No, they reached out to me. I'm sure they reached out to many, but my, my position is, is unique. I, I don't have a research or a publishing requirement, but I have a heavier teaching load. And the school wanted to add one professor that teaches law, law students how to do deals. It's not really a part of the pedagogy at most law schools. They typically focus on very theoretical doctrinal courses, heavy bent towards you know, litigation type practices. And yet a lot of students become deal lawyers like me. And so BYU was a little bit actually maybe quite innovative in just creating one tenure track position for transactional skills type um, classes. I, I think a lot of other schools are now doing it. And, um, and so BYU reached out, I, I received an email from them asking me to um, consider applying. I, I'm, you know, my, the company I was working for was, it was owned by a public company, but it was probably getting close in my mind to going public. So the timing wasn't perfect for me, but I thought, hmm, you know, it doesn't hurt to apply. So I applied and spent a couple of months in that process. And after a couple of months of interviews and visits, it, it, it seemed like a really sort of the right thing to do, I guess. It's worked out well for me. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, talk about just your journey in this LGBTQ space, Curtis. Yeah, I think I'll start with a very short experience that, I mean, in some respects lays the context for where, where the path led me with the LGBT community in particular. And that experience occurred on my mission. I, I'd been out a few months and still in my first area. And just because of the, the composition of my teaching pool and it was big and it was, it was the, my favorite teaching pool I ever had on my mission. And most of the members in the pool were black. And it was just these wonderful, rich, you know, characteristic families. And I just, I loved visiting them. And, and so really for the first time I had to sit down and sort of address face-to-face -face this concept of the pre-1978 priesthood restriction. Yeah, before, I mean, I, I mean, this was in the, the, the late eighties. So the, the, you know, it was within 10 years of... And maybe you mentioned where you're serving. Tell I us. served in Alaska. Okay. And so I was up in the North Pole. It was, the, the town I was in was North Pole uh, in the Fairbanks area. And, wow. and I was covering Elias, Elias and Air Force Base or Ellison Air Force Base. And, and a lot of the um, uh, men and women on duty up there were from the South. And so I just for whatever reason, I just had a very heavily black Baptist teaching pole. And, um, really for the first time I, I became perplexed and at times really bothered by the, the idea that if it was, it would have been 10 years before I served, I would be looking at these, these wonderful families and saying, join the church, but you know what? You just, you're not allowed in the temple, right? You can't be sealed. You know, don't worry, God will work it out. But for right now, you know, this wonderful message we have is just, just not available to you. And, and for the first time, I was really having to grapple with sort of two very conflicting aspects that I really valued. First is, is I've always had a tremendous appreciation and gratitude for the function that prophets and apostles have within our theology and our doctrine in our church. I, mean, I, I love that message to share it, that we have um, prophets and apostles and, and we have this great gift from God that allows us to have access to... Um, 
to you know, spiritual guidance and truth. And at the same time, I am coming across the realization that there's sort of some troubling stuff out there that it's maybe not as clean as, as I told myself it was, you know, coming up through um, high school in my early years. And, and so I really did a deep dive. I was a pretty, um, I would say, disobedient missionary in the sense that I just read things like crazy. And I would always find that quirky member of the ward that I was serving in that had the big library and, and would have these <laughs> conversations. And so I, 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 um, I, I just I got a hold of a lot of information reading and trying to figure out what's, you know, what's the, what's going on here. And I sort of struggled with this for, um, for many, many months. And I still remember the day I was driving from Soldotna to Anchorage and you come around what's called Turnagain Arm. And you, know, you have these mountains and there's hanging glaciers and it was early spring. So the, you know, the, the creeks were running and it just green. It was beautiful. And I, and the sun was is setting. I was driving back from some mission business and I, I just had this really meaningful experience, which for purposes of this podcast, doesn't, we won't go into. And, but in the end, I sort of came away with a foundation of this idea of waiting on the Lord. And the feeling that I felt was, was, yeah, the, the, the concerns that you have, the, the sort of the, the pain that, that you feel about having to look at some of these people in the face and have to somehow defend something that you really just don't feel comfortable defending. There's nothing, you're not wrong, right? But you need to wait on the Lord. You need to, you know, and waiting on the Lord uh, is a great phrase because I think when you have things you're, you're trying to figure out or that it's not that you're wrong, it's just you need to wait. And um, and be patient, and and I also so number one and number two, I walked away with this idea that faith is messy sometimes, and so it, it prepared me for later in my years when I started really listening to and reading Fiona and Terrell Givens, and their teachings that just resonated with me that faith to be real faith has to have two very legitimate choices. You have to have two options to choose from that um, both have legitimacy and both have yeah, would you consider to have meaning? And, and so this led me to this idea that sometimes you just, you have to make a choice and it's not, it's not necessarily because there's a crystal clear, obvious choice. It's just, you have to choose and it's messy sometimes. And then finally, I actually walked out of the, out of this experience or morphed out of it with still a really great appreciation and gratitude about prophets and apostles and leaders still has very, a lot of mean, meaning to me. But I'll tell you, my expectations and sort of how I define the ultimate value of that just changed dramatically. I just, I view the, my love and appreciation and need for apostles and prophets differently. I, I sort of took them off a pedestal and just said, I'm grateful for their service, but you know what? My faith is in Jesus Christ. And so that, does that make sense? That makes sense. And I love the experience you had on your mission. Um, and I love the framework. I would call it a more sustainable testimony that developed as you wrestled with complicated things and how you had to. And so to me, that's a, a faith building experience, even though it was difficult at times and a little unorthodox to be going to members homes and reading stuff that wasn't on the mission reading list. But I would say that's part of just your beautiful journey in the church. And, uh, and a foundation that helps others know how to navigate stuff. And it's very personal. I mean, I, I came out of that, actually, I think feeling far more 
um, stabilized and, and actually far more gracious. Actually, that my gratitude increased because I realized, you know, if, if prophets and apostles are struggling and, and it wasn't so much, I had moved away from the policy itself. I'm like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not in a position to judge. That was absolutely right or absolutely wrong. I, I was just more concerned about just sort of the statements in support of it. And, you know, there, there's, I, I really do believe that, um, this idea that if you're struggling with something, always go read the prophets and apostles, what they have to say about it leads you to good, you know, for the prophets and apostles in the fifties and the sixties talking about race, don't do that. You know, it, it is, it is not as clean as, as it, sometimes we talk like it is. And some of the things that were said and written that justified or explained it, I just were very difficult. And so, um, and so this idea that, Sometimes prophets and apostles are, they're humans too, and they're learning and God is gracious and patient with them. You know, then maybe God's a little more patient with me too. You know, it sort of gives us, a, it gives me a lot more confidence in myself to know that these people that we really revere and hold up um, high in front of us and somebody that we emulate, hey, if they're learning and growing, then I, maybe I should cut myself a lot more slack as I learn and grow as well. One of my favorite um comments one of my institute teachers s michael wilcox says in some matters it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure um, this will still leave us with a great deal to be certain about why maintaining the humility to learn well uh, let's be honest it it is so much more engaging and enjoyable for me to be a member of the church and to wake up going okay what's going to come down next you know, what's, what's, what's new is coming out. And I love that about the church. I love the idea that for the most part, you know, there, there's a scripture that says that in, in the book of Mormon, where Jesus Christ is talking to the, to the Nephites and their Nephi, and he says, you know, all men are commanded to repent and believe in me and whoso believeth in me and is baptized and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved and inherit the kingdom of God. And I say unto you that this is my doctrine and whoso shall declare more or less than this, the same cometh of evil. And so in some respects to me, that is the untouchable, unchangeable aspect of our doctrine. It is that Jesus came, he died. And if we rely on him, we can be saved. And Joseph Smith taught the same thing. He taught that the, the testimony that Jesus died was buried and then rose on the third day. This is the fundamental principles of our religion. And he said, everything else is ancillary. And so for me, the idea that anything that's ancillary, who knows what God's going to do with it. And I think that's exciting. I love being part of a tradition and a religion to where you, you have this, this, not only a belief, but almost an expectation that as our society morphs and grows and progresses, that are, are these ancillary principles that are only intended to point us to the core doctrine will morph and grow with the society to make that doctrine more meaningful in our lives. I love that, Curtis. For our listeners, go back to this tender topic of the role of our leaders. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth that I'm, I'm sensing that you sustain, support our leaders. It's not an issue of sustaining and support. It's a reframing their mind reframing their role in your mind in a way that's more sustainable or points us not necessarily that helps or their role to point us to Christ and, and that scripture. Just go through that again for our listeners. Cause I think a lot of our listeners need kind of to, to find a way to get to where you are so they can make the church work. 
Yeah, I'll give you just one experience that I think um, really was meaningful to me on that. And, um, and we'll talk about the 2015 policy later. Um, but when I was getting my head around that, I also had, I guess we had one, we had, Seth was still on a mission. He was in Hong Kong. And, and the current circumstances in Hong Kong makes this story, will make this story a little just more meaningful. Just tell our listeners about what's going on in Hong Kong as we're recording this. Well, they just pulled out all the missionaries. Because of? of the contravirus. That, that's right. That, so it's a, it's a, the, our, our, our leaders were, had to make a decision and about the safety of their missionaries. And my daughter had just returned from her mission. So she went to Will, uh, Wisconsin, went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, and my son was still on his mission. They overlapped for the bulk of their missions. And you had two kids, all your kids on a mission. Yeah, the entire family. Yeah. Holy craziness. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. And um, it just, I just thought this thought came to my, the two things happened is this, but when I'm thinking about the, the 2015, this, this impression came to my mind that said, look, if, if your son was in harm's way in um, Hong Kong, what do you, what do you think the brethren, right? The, the apostles and prophets, how do you think they would react to that? And Richard, I firmly believe that they would turn heaven and, and earth upside down to protect my son. I really believe that. I believe that they um, are uh, focused with that. They are obsessed with making sure their missionaries are safe and that they have resources. Of course, things happen, but, um, and, and, and then that reminded me of an event that when I was a, a YSA bishop, you know, we were, this is, and we'll get to this, I think a little later when I'm, I'm starting to have a lot of LGBTQ members come talk to me and just the, just the, the, really the disappointment and the frustration I had in myself because I just didn't have answers for them. And I frankly felt very uncomfortable at times telling them like, maybe mission presidents had told them in the past or bishops had told them like, Oh, if you just do this, then you'll be changed. You do this, you'll be, you know, you'll be cured or whatever. And, and, and these wonderful members of my ward were not changing and they were not being cured. And frankly, they didn't need to be, they just, that's who they were. And, and they were beautiful as is. And, but I didn't, I, I was, it was hard for me to say, yeah, you need to really engage full bore in the church because a lot of them, it was really it was traumatic for them and it was difficult for them. And they were hearing things at church that just was not consistent with what God was whispering into their souls when they were alone by themselves in, looking in the mirror, wondering if they have value and what they felt like when they went to the temple. And, and so I was, I was frustrated and I was, I was a little bit disappointed um, that I, I just felt like I was letting these members down and trying to both be fully supportive of the church, but, but by no means, you know, imposing something on them that only caused them emotional and, and mental harm. And at our award, my, my home ward in, we were in Carrollton, we actually are the geographical area of the regional storehouse. So this is the storehouse that covers all of East Texas and Northeast Texas and a bulk of, of West, West Texas. And because we are very proximate to the storehouse, we, we, we carry some of the responsibility to operate it. And there was an email that went around that said, we just need drivers. We just desperately need drivers. 
And what that means is that a, you, a driver would wake up very early in the morning on Saturday. You'd show up. The there'd be two or three missionaries that are called. Usually they're from Idaho. And if you want to know what the celestial kingdom looks like, go visit a storehouse and just sit down with the missionaries that are called to, to run those storehouse. I and mean, they're just, they're just the most humble. They're just without guile. You know, it's just amazing. And so the, 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 the missionaries will have already loaded up all the food orders for seven or eight steaks. And you have this very large, very um, nice refrigerated truck. And then the drivers show up at four in the morning or five, whatever it is. And then you spend the bulk of your day driving from stake center to stake center to stake center, dropping off these food orders. And the reason why the church set it up that way is in the past, these, the, 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 the recipients or their Relief Society president or elders corn president would have to drive all the way in to Dallas and they were, they were sincerely bothered by the fact that some members didn't have the means to do that, or it was so, um, such a burden financially and on, on time-wise on the members that they were just terrified they were missing people that needed food. And so they instituted this, this new program of actually taking the food to them. So I saw this email and I had this really strong impression, like, you should sign up to do that. So we signed- As a bishop. Yeah, as a bishop. So- we, and I said, well, you know, I'm busy enough. I'm, you know, I'm working. You know, my, my practice was not exactly a nine to five job. And so my, my practice is busy. I'm, I'm a bishop. And I talked to Margie and, and let's, like, let's just do this together. Right? This, is a, this will be a great way to spend some time. And I coached all my kids' sports teams. So usually my Saturdays were coaching soccer or basketball or baseball. They were now gone. And so we still had this Saturday flexibility. So we applied and got rejected. <laughs> we got rejected because first Margie was a woman and you have to be a priesthood holder to, to do that, which we'll get into that in a minute. It was pretty funny. And I was rejected because my stake president said, I, we don't, I won't let bishops do that. And so we went down and talked to the missionaries and, and they said, well, we've never had a woman apply because you have to go through training. You have to get your, you have to get sort of a license thing and you have to do all this work. And they're like, oh, we've never really had a woman be licensed to drive the church trucks. But you know, these, you know, these, these angelic people from Idaho are like, but there's no reason why they can't. Right. And so as long as she can reach the gas pedals and the brake, then she can do it. And Margie's not the tallest person in the world. And she barely passed that test, I think. Way to go, Margie. And so, so we, 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 we sort of went around the stake president on that issue and we just got permission outside of that to, to get her. And they said, sure, we'll, 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 we'll get her through. And then I went back to the stake president and said, look, I'm, I need to do this. And he said, I, you just, I, I won't let bishops do this. And I said, well, then you need to release me as being a bishop because I feel that strongly about it. And I, and I, I've been friends with my stake president for 15 years. We are in the same ward. We, you know, we've been in the trenches a long time and I sort of had a smile on my, on my face, but I think he knew I was serious. And so he said, all right, dig your own grave, man. You know, if you want to do it, do it. And so we got, we trained up and then for the next year and a half or so, we would spend every, you know, every once a, once a month or so, whatever it ended up being showing up and driving the storehouse truck. And I'm telling you, if you want to see the church in action, drive the storehouse truck in Texas. I mean, it is one of the most beautiful experiences. You, you, you drive up to a stake center and like all these people from the local ward are giving up their Saturday morning and afternoon 
and, and they line up the, the, the cultural hall with tables and they set it up like a, like a supermarket and they, then they bring in the patrons and they're just treated with incredible dignity and love. And they're treated like it's a, it's a privilege for us to give you food. And it's just amazing. And, 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 and that experience reminds me, there's a lot more to the church than sometimes these, these very important issues that are still slivers, right? It's just one sliver of what the church is. And it really was really good for me to be reminded of that, to remember that when, when President Nelson and President Oaks get up in the morning and, and they start meeting, I, I really don't think the first topic is, is what are we going to say about LGBTQ issues? I think their, their first topic is, is are we getting food to the poor? Are we getting our storehouses stocked? Do they have the resources they need? Are we missing anybody we should not be missing? And how are our missionaries doing? What can we do to make sure they're protected and can thrive? And, and, and those are the things that they're talking about. And, and those things are really meaningful to me. And, um, and I have, when I, when I take a look at myself and how I view sort of where I fit in, in the church, I have to remember the church is a, it's a big, there's a lot going on and, and I, I frankly, I'm, it was a great honor to be a part of things like that. That's cool. I wrote down, drive the storehouse truck. That sounds like something I wish I were doing with my wife. Plus it's fun to drive a big truck. <laughs> and Margie's here as in the, she doesn't have a mic in front of her, but how did Margie do driving the truck? Oh yeah, she did great. She's probably better at it than I am. You know, <laughs> if you, you know, but, um, keep telling your story, Curtis, this is great. Um, so anyway, that, that, that so that brings back, to, I think, to the, your original question, which is sort of our church leaders, prophets and apostles. And, and um, so even though I came out of my priesthood restriction experience as a young missionary with this idea like, wow, you know, maybe I should really focus in my, my faith and my confidence in Jesus Christ and not, you know, on, on you know, who necessarily the prophets and apostles are. I, I also just really have this tremendous amount of appreciation and gratitude for the service they provide. Um, you know, they are, um, I think they are leading the way that God wants them to lead. And I think the Lord, if you read the doctrine and covenants, there are two general principles. One doctrine, doctrine and covenants section 121 is very clear. If you're going to put, you know, your, your leaders on a pedestal, you're going to be disappointed because section 121 verses 34 through 46 are crystal clear about the struggles it will be for mortal men to lead. And that's the unrighteous dominion and pride and blah, blah, blah. And, and the Lord is crystal clear. Look at it's It's just going to be a struggle. And, and then the second principle though, the doctrine of covenants is, is um, members of the church. You need to be, patient with your leaders, your leaders will be patient with you and we'll all be patient with each other. But in the end, you know, your leaders are going to do, um, great things. They may, you know, they may be, you know, they may be a little bit, I don't know how to say, you know, they may be a little, um, um, 121, 34 through 46 may pop up from time to time. But the one thing we do not do is we do not usurp and become a leader into ourselves. And, um, and also we sustain our leaders and we put our trace, our, our, our faith in God. And so, you know, great comments, great comments. So keep telling your story. All right. So we'll jump forward now to, you know, now we're in Texas and now it's 2005. So many years later and in Texas, proposition two was up on the ballot. Proposition two was the proposition eight of California, but in Texas, 
course, you're in Texas and it was a few years before, so it's not the same drama. But and so there was a constitutional amendment to add a definition of marriage, which we would now refer to as the, the traditional definition of marriage, right? And and at this time I'm working, you know, I'm knee deep into or neck deep into um, law. And most of the people I'm I'm talking to are lawyers and and they the church had called the special fireside. And this is one of the first, I think we didn't really know what was going on. But I remember having the, a conversation with uh, a lot of my lawyer buddies, and this will show you how I need to stick to corporate law and not constitutional law because my instincts were totally wrong on this. But I remember having conversations saying, I wonder what this fireside is going to be about. And I said, I bet you this is what it's going to be about. The you know, leader's going to stand up and say, look, while we don't sanction same gender marriage, and it's not part of our theology or part of our practices, marriage is. And, and we feel that we need to make marriage a, you know, we need to support any claim that is a fundamental right protected by the constitution that, that majorities and governments can't take away the concept of marriage and sort of give it to whoever they want to. It's just as innate to us being human beings, we should have the right to marry who we believe we should marry. And there's obviously some, some limitations. We have a compelling government interest, like people who may not be able to consent or age-based restrictions. You know, so there's, there's obviously limitations around the fringes. But I thought, I bet you they're going to come out and say, we really want marriage protected, just marriage. And second of all, I mean, I had a couple of, by this point, uh, really good friends who were, um, he was, they were both gay and frankly, very religious. And for them, within their personal religious beliefs, marriage was a sacramental act. It was a it was a spiritual ordinance. And and I remember, you know, having a conversation with a friend of a friend about this, and they're like, "Yeah, they at this point they really cannot live their religion. They you know, being married legally is something that they view marriage in a way similar to the way I do, which is that's something that God expects me to do, and that being married will be this refining." process over the course of a lifetime that you become more charitable, you become more kind, you become more loving, you become more like God. And it you, it's just, you can't replicate that outside of a committed marriage. And so my second piece was, I thought, I bet you the church is going to come out and support it because they want religious freedom honored. It's just religious freedom. And this is before religious freedom became so prominent in our, our discourse. It wasn't talked about back then with them. Um, I thought, I bet you it's going to be a religious freedom too. I bet you they're going to Come out and say, we have you know, LGBTQ brothers and sisters who are not of our faith, again, and not part of our sanctioned you know, practice or theology, but they deserve the right to practice their religion. And if marriage is part of their religion, then religious liberty and the constitutional protection should allow them to do that. So I thought, I bet you that's what they're going to do. It's going to be real interesting. Well, I was, you know, of course, I was totally wrong. I mean, it was, it was um, a fireside um, that was more what you would expect. Like we all need to write letters. We need to be, a, we need to be in favor of this and blah, blah, blah. And you know, at the time it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't that exercised about it. I was more perplexed by it because I, I thought to myself, I really seems to me that this is sort of something fundamental to being human. And, and more importantly, to the extent marriage is embedded within a religious observance or belief, I just didn't, I just didn't think we should leave it up to the majority vote, right? Or leave it up to government, just sort of picking and choosing who gets to live their religion, who doesn't. And so I left that experience in 2005, not, it didn't really move me 
one way or the other. It it just it just seeded it planted these seeds in my mind about wow, this is a little more complicated than I thought it was because I was sure I was right and I was dead wrong when it came to um, and and so that that makes sense. That sort of percolated then for a few years, right? Then we um, then we hit two thousand eight, and of course Prop Eight hits and. Yeah, the, the primary thing I can say about Prop 8 is just thank heavens <laughs> I was in Texas and not in California because I, I was he- hearing a lot from my friends in California, faithful members of the church, trying to do what they were asked to do. And I'll tell you, it was traumatic for them. A lot of them really had a, they, they really struggled with it. it um, and I, I would have comments, I'd hear comments that were, you know, I'm not saying this is what I think or believe, it's just, just as what. I heard was it's like people were saying, I just don't know where the wheels came off, but it seems like the wheels have come off. I don't know what, what level, whether it was like the highest level or it was at the local level leadership or it was just the local members, but it, it just ended up being this experience that it just felt so um, different from what I thought the, the experience of being a member of the church would be. And again, I was seeing it from a distance. I was not involved in it, but I, I could tell that it was, it was really, it was really tough for a lot of people that I, I was really close to and that were, they were trying to do what they were asked to do. And they just didn't feel, they didn't feel good about it. It wasn't edifying to them. It wasn't the, the gifts of the spirit were not being manifest, you know, in their experience. And again, I'm not, I'm not judging one way or the other. I'm just saying, I'm listening to this and it's, it's amplifying these thoughts and feelings in my head, like, wow, this is this issue and this topic and how we, how we react with and interact with our gay brothers and sisters is just, this is, this is really an interesting and, and somewhat perplexing topic. And then I start getting all these remembrances of like, oh my gosh, I hope we're not repeating 1978, right? I hope we're not going down this exact same path as it was. Certainly we would not be repeating history. Um, but you know, it was, it, it had an impact on me, even though it was from a distance, just because I just didn't understand it. It just didn't, I didn't get that warm confirmation that, yeah, this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. And I just didn't know what to do with it. Thanks for telling us that experience. I, I like hearing, you know, about Prop 8 experiences. I it was kind of in the back of my mind living in Utah with Prop 8. I approached it from a marketing perspective. Because I'm a marketing guy, you kind of looked at it from a legal perspective in some ways. And I thought, and I just was worried this was hurting our church brand, so to speak, and our image and our ability to take the beautiful message of the restored gospel out to people because of the, for some, it helped our brand who were considering our church and wanting to stay in our church. Or for others, it really tarnished our brand. And I was concerned about that because I love our church and I recognized that this put a lot of people in a really difficult spot. And I, I think as well, and you know, at the time I had a couple of clients and I was spending most of my time in, in New York and in Houston. And um, in, in some respects, uh, to follow up on your point, it, it, was, it was sort of becoming sort of what we're known for, right? Um, if you're a member of the church, you, know, you don't smoke, you don't drink coffee, and you hate the gays. And I, I remember just feeling so... It just seemed to be so, with my heart of hearts, it felt like so counter to what I felt like I wanted people to see when they saw me is it should be the exact opposite, right? Well, 
the first two would be the same, right? Don't smoke, don't drink coffee, but we're the most loving, compassionate and acceptance of just, again, the church is a hospital. Everyone's accepted. You know, every, you bring in, doesn't matter what is ailing you. It's a bizarre hospital because everyone's invited and, and everyone are both patients and doctors. We just help each other. And the church is not a country club to where you have to sort of check off all the right boxes and then you get admitted into the club. That's just not the way I had ever viewed the church. And so I felt like I was having to have this image of what I valued tremendously imposed upon me by outsiders that I just felt was just wrong, but it was awfully hard to, to convince them, no, that's, that's not what that my church is. That's not what I represent. That's not who I am. So, um, one day I'm on Twitter, a lot of some of our listeners know, and we were talking about the word of peculiar people, Curtis, and I don't know where that started in our church, but we are a peculiar people. And I tweeted out, I hope we're peculiar in the way we treat others. And instead of being known as peculiar because of some of the things like coffee and tea, which is important part of our doctrine, but I think what a way to be known for people of the world is the way we treat others. And just what you said, we're the most compassionate, kind, loving people. And that's obviously the example that Christ set. So just what is one point before you go on is, is, and I I love that because, and this goes back to the storehouse. I, I, you know, you can tell this was a meaningful thing to me. So not only did we have the storehouse truck assignment, but well before that we would, we would go down, especially Margie and the kids. And again, again, I'm I'm really a bad example because there was a, a strict rule that you had to be 16 or over to work in the storehouse. And our kids worked there all the time as 13 and 12 year olds. We just, you know, and it was a great experience for them. They they loved working in the storehouse and the reputation of this of the storehouse and of of and if you would have to drive the truck around and you see the people lining up, it was very clear that these are not, you know, active members of the church. But you are known that if you need food, you go talk to the Mormons. They will get you food. You will always have something to eat if you and it's not simply like we'll throw you a couple of bucks. It is like you'll sit down and you'll walk out with two and a half weeks of really high quality food. And no one asks you what your religion is. No one asks you what your sexual attraction is. No one asks you whether or not last time you 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 um you know, had, you know, you know, took meth. I mean, no one added, it's like, you need food, we will give you food. And that's exactly what, I, I love that reputation. I love that image of, of what the church represents to a lot of people, which is like, oh, I can always go there. They'll always give me food. So to, I want to get to the policy statements and just that impact, but talk about if, if you're ready to, at this part of your story, your YSA assignment and having some yeah. LGBTQ people. So at this point, so at this, after Proposition 8 was about the time that I sort of had this string of callings. So my, the, at, at, when I think when Proposition 8 was coming down the pipe, I was actually an early morning seminary teacher and I taught New Testament. We both love the New Testament. I love, yeah. So it was just, it's great stuff. And again, I'm, I'm, at the time I'm partner at a really large law firm. It is very demanding. Um, there are times where I'm spending almost my only free hour or two a day getting my lesson ready for the next morning because I just, I didn't want to let those kids down. Right. I mean, these, I had freshmen and sophomores and they, I, they would always come and I'm like, you know, if they're showing up, I I need to be as prepared as I can to give them hopefully a a meaningful experience or as best I can do. And so I did that. And then I rolled into 
being a member of the bishopric in our ward. I served there for quite a while. Um, and then I rolled onto the high council. Then I rolled back into a YSA bishopric. And then I rolled into being a YSA bishop. So there was about seven years there where after early morning seminary, it was a sort of a constant pulse on sort of what's going on in the ward. And for the first few callings, I think the real meaningful experiences I had in particular with the LGBTQ community was with the parents. And I started having conversations with the parents and, and they were, they were tough. Um, It was, it was such a hard issue at that time. And after Proposition 8, I just did a deep dive into reading everything I could find. And I remember one day I was, I had just finished reading a, a quite a long interview that Elder Oaks at the time and Elder Wickman gave about um, gay and lesbian status with sort of within the church. It was a Q&A type form. It went on for pages. And, and it was sort of the first time there was actually a little softening in the idea that, well, there are two really substantial things. Number one is for the first time that I could find that sort of an official position, like this is not a choice. And I'd always assumed up to this point, right? Well, just, just choose, just choose not to be gay. And then you can fully participate in the church, right? That's what I'd been taught. And it was clear by the time I was getting to this point that that really didn't seem right to me anymore. And, and that was one of the first times I saw the leadership say, yeah, we're sort of learning this too. And we're, we're backing away from this as an agency thing. We're backing away that, this idea that there's not full participation granted to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters because it's quote, a consequence of their agency. And, and so there's this softening to like, you should invite them in your home. But of course there was still this, Oh, but don't let the boyfriend or the girlfriend come, you know? And, but it was actually somewhat, um, it, it was a different approach. And I ran into a couple in our ward that had a gay son and these two are without guile. I mean, these, they are just, the most humble, believing, they are the foundation of the church, these, um, this, this um, couple. And I just in passing mentioned, hey, by the way, did you, have you seen this, this interview on LES.org? And neither one of them had. And I said, yeah, you might find a couple of things interested in that. And I just mentioned a couple of the of the idea that, you know, that, that we're backing away from, this is a choice. We're backing away from, this is a, consequence of their upbringing, right? This is a consequence of their environment, right? All the things that parents have control over. And this is actually maybe just, you know what, they may have been born with um, attraction to their same gender. And that's just the way God created them. And they both just started weeping just right there in the hallway, just tears are welling in their eyes. And there was like this enormous release from them on this idea that that wasn't their fault or they had done something wrong or that their son had done something wrong because their son was just the most charming, sweet little boy. I mean, he was a teenager, right? And, and I remember looking at them in their faces and going and thinking to myself, something's not right here. There's no reason why there should be such pent up anguish and pain where these parents, all they want to do, they just want to love their kid. They just want to love their child and they've loved that boy since the day he was born. And if you talk to him, they'll say, yeah, you know, we're not really surprised they're gay, but what we love about him is now what is our characteristics that we associate with something that we should be ashamed of. And 
I tell you what, they, it was just so hard for that, for those parents to reconcile that, to be faithful and loyal to the church and somehow not loyal to their son. And that really hit me hard. And so that caused me to, again, just start to look at these things a little deeper and recognize, you know, you just, we just can't sit on the sidelines and just let them figure it out. I think we need to step up as brothers and sisters and just help each other. And we need to support each other and we need to give each other, you know, the, the feelings of just God is loving and loves all of us. And you know what? God is aware and, and God is going to take care of all people who just look to him kind of a thing. And so that was dealing with the parents for a few years really gave me a, a deeper view into the idea that this is really a painful and unnecessarily traumatic in my mind as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I, I'm an outsider to this, right? We have, we have extended family members who are gay or lesbian. And I think by most accounts, our aunts and uncles and cousins have been phenomenal in, in, um, in how they've dealt with that, but not everyone has been able to have the same experience. And, and it just, it made, it's, it really made me sensitive to the idea that there's just so much pent up pain and misunderstanding and within the church that is clouding the message that we should be teaching. Love that story. That brought tears to my eyes. Just I'm in the hallway with you with these sweet parents and just that emotion welling up. Yeah. Talk about, um, just keep telling your story, Curtis. All right. So then after a run there, I, I, I move into uh, the YSA ward. The Bishop was a, he was a little bit older um, Tongan, ex NFL football player. Um, I tell people his name is Willie. His name is Willie Mawala. And I, and I, I'll tell people very clearly that when I go to heaven, I'm going to start walking and looking in rooms and the room that I see Willie Mawala sitting in, that's the room I'm going into. So I really hope he chooses well, because I'm, I'm sort of following him. I mean, if Peter is telling me, no, no, go over there, you know, there's sort of Joseph Smith's in that room and Brigham Young's in that room too. And, and but Willie's across the hall, I'm going to go into Willie's room, you know. What a tribute to Willie. Just, I love Willie Mall. And he's this big hearted, just kind, loving, again, a big, you know, just big Tongan, you know, they just, their culture is just so um, warm and loving and, and so, but at the time also his, his wife was starting to have some health issues and the state president, when, he, when they put me in, they said, look, he's, you need to take everything off his plate that you can, because we want him to, to um, finish the expected um, time of his calling. But we're, we're concerned that he have sufficient time to, to be at home and to, and to help his wife. And of course he, I mean, he was, he was, you know, it's hard to get anything off his plate, but but for the most part, I took a lot of, as much as I could off his plate and which, which meant, you know, not doing worthiness interview, not doing sort of, um, you know, judging Israel type stuff, but you know, everything I, mean, I could do most of the temple interviews and a lot of the worthiness interviews and whatever. And, and then after he was released, I rolled in and became the Bishop. So I was there for a while. And, and in that experience, it shifts from the parents to the children and you can probably tell by now I, I was, yeah, the YSA wards in Texas are probably not a lot different here, but where there's like our wards are not tied to colleges. And so there were members in my ward that had been there for eight years. And 
There is also migration amongst the YSAs, right? They talk and they, oh yeah, you know, this bishop is really, really hardcore. And this bishop is, he loves church courts. And then you have bishops like me, which is like, I mean, you, I, I'm like, I'll do anything to keep you coming to church. I'll do anything to keep you engaged. And, and so you sort of ebb and flow, right? People start moving into your ward and, and once you're known as somebody that you can, they can talk to and open up with, and you're not going to just say, read your scriptures and pray and everything will go, you know, you actually will just sit there and just say, I, I'm so sad. I, I wish I had some, you know, but you, but you know, they have space to just sort of be themselves. And, um, and then so we had a, a lot of people started moving in because of that. And then we also have the summer cells. Right. Yes. Every, yeah. Every, yeah. every April to August, our ward would literally triple in size and all the summer sales guys come through and, and, and guys and, and more and more women. And, and it's also a chance, right. For all the summer sales guys to sort of get stuff cleaned up, right. They're in between semesters. They're like, Hey, I got to get some stuff wrapped up so I can go back to BYU. I hadn't thought about that. Oh yeah, yeah. It is. It's, you know, it's the first couple of weeks, the lines around the corner, right? And they're like, Hey, Bishop, I need to just talk to you about a couple of things so I can get my ecclesiastical endorsement. And I'm fine. Yeah, I love you know, it. Yeah, they need yeah, that. Yeah, you know, that's great. That's exactly right. They're, 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 they're trying to do what's right, but they're trying to do it in a way that it gives them, you know, uh, a safe space to do it. And there's, um, and so anyway, yeah, I, I start to have a lot of, um, of members of the ward you know, coming to me and saying, look, I, I don't know what to do with this anymore. I mean, I, I was told that if I just prepare and go on a mission that my, these, the, this, this attraction I have to, um, uh, men would, would go away or this attraction I have to women would go away. And then my mission president told me if I just work with hard, it would go away and, and it's not going away. Right. And, and, and you could tell these, um, men and women were, were, they're trying to figure out what's going on, right? I'm, I'm being told all this stuff and none of it's happening. And, and yet, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, I like who I am. I, I look in the mirror and I, I know that I am, uh, you know, a child of God and, um, and I don't want to change. Right. I, 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 and so I started having a lot more um, experiences with the members of my ward that, as I mentioned before, it was, it was frustrating for me to not feel like I had more to offer them to where we could offer them a safe place within the church. And this concept of a safe place that comes up back within circle. Right. And which is, I think why in circle is so, so resonates with me so strongly. And, um, at the same time though, I looking at these men, women, I'm thinking, you know, if, if they walk out the door, my experience is diminished. I mean, if I walk in and the chairs they used to sit in are, are, are no longer, you know, filled with them, I don't enjoy church as much. I just don't. I, I just, and so in some respects, I'm really selfish, right? I really want these members of my ward who I just love and who are just such wonderful additions to our ward. And they bring energy and synergy and just talent and skills to the ward. When they walk out the door, the ward suffers. And so part of it is like, I'm really selfish. And like, I want our, our ward needs you. And in some respects, I almost felt sometimes we need you more than you need us. Cause I'm confident God will take care of you if you'll just let him, but we can't replace you. Right. When you walk in, there's not another you out there. And when you stop coming because it's just too hard, that, that has repercussions throughout our entire ward. People that you can touch and can 
can support and love and, and you're not there. That's just, we can't replace you. And so I had this weird, you know, dynamic of, of a, a complete confidence that God will take care of, of these people if they'll just stay and, and stay close to him and whatever they feel the best is for them. But boy, it was sure hard on me to, to recognize we could be such a better ward if, if so-and-so would feel more comfortable here. And, and so that, that's idea of pro- providing safe space and, and, and providing an opportunity for people to just, and there's also a, a second component of this is there seems to be this idea that you've got to just choose and deal with it now. And I just don't think you have to. I think, I think there's no reason why these things, these decisions have to be made quickly. And again, providing safe space to let people just take their time and work through whatever decisions they need to make, but to not feel like it has to be done by next Sunday or next Wednesday and, and say, you know what, I may, I may be on this journey for years and all I need is just a safe place to sort of work on the path to where I feel safe. I feel valued. I, I, I have an experience amongst the people around me that is consistent with the experience I have with God is, was what we were trying to create in that ward. And I think we were successful in many respects, but it's love that not as successful as you'd like to be. Right. Yeah. I want to keep, I, one more, I want to get to the policy statements and encircle and anything else. What were there things that, um, cause in my why I say Simon, some of my feelings changed about LGBTQ people, choice and they can change it. Maybe that you're already there by that point. Were there just other things as you met, as you went from parent talking to parents to talking to LGBTQ that changed for you? No, that's a a really good um, question. And I think my experience was very similar to yours. Uh, I still, I still hadn't, again, I've, I had only at that point um, dealt with parents and my colleagues. I had a two senior partners at my firm I worked with. One was gay and one was lesbian. And I worked closely with, as close with them as any lawyers in my firm. And they, they were crucial to my career development. They were just, they were my mentors. Cool. And yeah, they were, they were just really good to me. And, and that gave me just this really wonderful appreciation for just the, the, the goodness is, is not tied to, to your sexual attraction. You know, it's just such a, it almost seems silly to say that now, but even more important, it made me pretty defensive. Um, maybe a, in a, maybe a little bit too much, but I, I became a little defensive when people would say anything about, Oh, the gays and lesbians, because, you know, you're almost talking about my family at that point, because these, these two lawyers were just so um, important to my career development. And I also had an associate when I was a, a partner a little bit before this, she came from the South from a very conservative Baptist family. And she was going through the process of coming out as lesbian. And I just saw the complete turmoil that she went through. I think her dad might've been a minister if I'm remembering this right. And, and I mean, her health just started falling down the roof, her work quality just started to really suffer. And I felt so, I mean, she was my neighbor, right? We were office mates. And so I, I really felt like I, I did whatever I could do to help her professionally and, 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 to, and put her on my deals and to give her some, some work to do and gave her some space to, to, um, to do it well. And then when she left, I, I tried to help her quite a bit and placing cool. her with other job. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just felt like that was important to do. 
And, um, and I, I haven't talked to her for a while, actually for years, but I've, you know, I've seen her on Facebook from time to time and she seems to be doing so. I mean, I, I think that she is, That's great. Yeah, based on what I can see, she is reconciled with her family. She has, she has a great life. I think she's doing really well. And so that, that makes me a lot of, of, of heart, of, of happiness. But so as, as, um, but I hadn't really thought much about the whys or the what's or whatnot, and when I'm talking to these LGBTQ members of my ward, or this, I mostly just gay and lesbian. I don't, I don't think I really had trans. a trans. Yeah, I, I'm that's still a little bit where I'm a little bit um, not as as um, had this experience that I I think maybe I need to um, one day. But um, there there were a couple of of members who really did believe it came from an abuse when they were small or some traumatic experience in their small. And that's sort of what they internally believed. And I, I, I never told anybody whether they're, they're right and wrong. That's the one thing I, when I became a YSA Bishop, I actually sat down with a therapist and I said, look, you've got it. I am terrified cool. that I'm going to screw up people more than I'm going to help. And so I just said, just give me some, that's just, really yeah, cool. just help me. I did it with another Bishop that I'm good friends with in, in, in Carrollton. And we, we sat down and spent like three hours with them. I think we even paid for it. We just bought three hours of his time and just, and he just gave us some, some training about this is, this is how you should interact with people who come to you with you know, experiences that what you say could really impact them. And one of the things I took away was, is you don't tell somebody that they're wrong, right? You don't tell somebody who says, this is what I think is it. You, you know, you send someone to a therapist that you, a bishop doesn't do that. And, and so there are a handful that felt that way, but more often than not, you'd have a member look across and say, Bishop, I, I'll be honest with you. I just, I don't, I didn't choose this. This is not something that I chose. It's not something that I sought out. It's, I have felt um, that I am gay or lesbian from as long as I even sort of understood what attractions were. And even, and, and I looked across the table, I'm looking at them in the eyes and I think they are totally telling me the truth. I don't think there is one ounce of, of deception and what they're saying. I think they are telling me exactly what their life experience is. And, and so I walked away with the, with the experience that look at everyone has their own experience and I'm sure there's a spectrum and there are different, um, reasons why maybe people end up, um, with the attraction that they have. But the one thing I could never, ever feel comfortable saying is that if somebody says, this wasn't a choice. I believed them. I absolutely believed them. And I had to then sit down and reconcile the fact that that they were created by God that, you know, with, that's just who they are. It's, it's their essence. It, it, it's what makes them as, as a child of God to the same extent that I am heterosexual. I love that. And there's no shame then. If, I mean, if, unless you want to criticize God. Yeah. Right. So you look that's in the way mirror, I viewed it. Yeah. Yeah. If you look in the mirror, if you're straight or not, you see yourself as an equal member of the human family created as God. I sometimes say, I don't think God's up there doing a head plant or a face palm saying, oh no, what went wrong? Some of my children are LGBTQ. I, I think everybody agrees God can't be surprised. He doesn't make mistakes. So somehow this is part of his plan. Talk about, I want to make sure we get to um, the policy statements. Um, so let's go right, let's go to those. Good. So, so 2015, now, yeah. I think is when November ish of 2015, yeah, November 2015. So I, um, 
So, you know, I moved to BYU in August. I, I'm released as a bishop. I'm going back and forth for another six weeks or so. I think I was released at the end of September. Margie comes out in October. And so for the first time, we're just settling into our new ward, right? We've been sort of out and about. And yeah, this was an interesting um, little week. And so, you know, on Wednesday, November 4th, we, I read some reviews of this new, uh, it was not new at the time, I guess, but it, it was a movie called Once I Was a Beehive. And it's, it was still sort of this quirky little fun movie. And it was at the Dollar Theater. I came home from work and, and we talked to Marge. What are we going to do? Like, let's, let's go to this movie. What the heck? That's a buck. And so we drive down and, and go to the movie. And of course, we're still really pretty new to Utah. And I had forgotten that Wednesday is youth night for most wards, at least a lot of wards. So we walk into this theater and it was me, the only guy that I remember seeing, you know, decent amount of young women's leaders and about a hundred beehives. So we're watching once I was a beehive with eventually a bunch of beehives and it was a riot. I mean, they're cheering, they're laughing, you know, they're into the movie and I'm here walking around going, this is like awesome. And I like the movie. The movie is just this big tent Mormonism, bring whatever problems you want to us. And, you know, we're sort of a train wreck too, but we'll just help each other. Um, it was just an uplifting movie. And it was, I what? so I walked out feeling the gift of the spirit, right? Love and peace and hope and joy. And I'm like, ah, this is what makes the church great. And, um, and then the, the, that was on Wednesday. And then on Friday, of course, the morning, it, it, the news pops coming out and the, the leak of the 2015 policy pops out. And of course my phone just starts exploding because all these buddies I have, by now, sort of all across the country, a lot yeah. of them are in leadership positions and people that I used to know in Texas, people that I, that I've just interacted with, whatever. And they're all in different parts of the country. And all of a sudden everybody thinks because I'm a BYU, I have inside information. Right? <laughs> and so I, my phone explodes. I'm getting texts like, are you seeing this? Do you have any information? This, the most common thing I think that I kept hearing was this can't be right. These are like state presidents and bishops, right? This, this can't be right. Is this right? You know, do you know anything? And I'm texting back like, I don't, I don't know anything. I, I don't even, so we're all trying to catch up on it. And then of course it comes out later that it was, um, that it was real. It wasn't some pranks, uh, prank or anything like that. It was real. And, and so we're trying to get our heads around it and we're reading it. And even the language didn't make a lot of sense. And it seemed to be drafted in just sort of a really ambiguous, weird way that left confused. Anyway, and so the next couple of days were sort of the opposite of the fruits of the spirit. It was, I was confused and I was a little bit, I was a little bit, I was not even a little bit, I was sad and it just didn't feel good. I just didn't feel good. And that may be my fault. I don't know. I, I, but I didn't have these warm, fuzzy feelings. I actually felt sort of the opposite that I felt coming out of this movie, you know, and then, you know, the. The, the, sort of the big event is so Sunday comes up and we had had state conference on the 1st of November. So we were having fast and testimony meeting on the 9th. So this is two days after. And I woke up with just this pit in my stomach and a very clear impression. Like you're going to have to get up and say something. And again, remember we're brand new to this ward and I'm not a testimony meeting 
you know, consistent player. I, I'll get up every once in a while, but I, I'm not a, um, you know, get up a, a lot in fast and test when meeting. And so we're sitting in, in fast and test when meeting and I am uncomfortable and right out of the shoot, like the first four or five, you know, like, I am so glad that we're led by, you know, essentially men who never make mistakes. And, you know, we stand up for what's right and who cares what, you know, and they were a little bit militant and, and I'm looking around and of course I'm, I'm my YSA hat on Bishop hat. And I'm like, okay, who in this audience is now just feeling like this is not for me. I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not welcome here. I'm clearly not I don't have the same experience people are having. I, 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 I'm not worthy to be here. I, I don't know. And so I walk up there and I, all I said was, I said, look, um, went to this movie on Wednesday, once I was a beehive. And I just talked a little bit about it and how it was just open and warm. And it's just like, everyone is welcome. And it doesn't matter what's, what you're dealing with or what is in your life that you're trying to figure out. Just come, right. Just come and be a part of us and let's, you help us and we'll help you. And we'll just try to get to this together. And just this wonderful, empowering message of everyone's invited. Um, and I said, I just, and I walked out feeling the, you know, these very positive fruits of the spirit. And then Friday comes across, um, my, my life. And all of a sudden I'm receiving a message that no, some people aren't invited. You know, you can't be baptized. And, um, and, you know, you, 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 not because of anything you did, it's just literally, you can't be baptized. Oh, and if your parents are struggling with this, then we're going to start labeling. Right. And, and I, I said, look, I, I, I am not going to tell you what's right or wrong. I don't know. I, I'm not going to be God here. All I'm telling you is what I felt. And I've been taught from a very early age to pay attention to my feelings that I need to pay attention that sometimes that's how the spirit talks to us. And so I said, look, I just bear my testimony that, that even though I feel very uncomfortable and I feel sad and I feel, um, a little bit depressed about what's happened the last couple of days, um, I, I testify that either if I'm wrong, God will get me right. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait on the Lord and I'll let the Lord open up my heart and, and I'll figure out why I'm feeling this way and he'll get me right. And I said, and if, if, if the policy is wrong, I have confidence that the Lord will fix it either way. It's going to be fixed. And so I am all in straight ahead, but I just wanted you to know that this is, this is a, this is a tough day for me, but I still have faith in the Lord and I'm still trusting in the Lord. And I'm going to wait on the Lord. Um, uh, I'm not going to, um, um, act any other way. And so of course, as you expect, I get the, the stare downs from the older members of the ward. Like, who is this guy? You know, we don't even know this guy is. And he's saying that, that this policy could be wrong. That's a, you know, we need to kick him out of the church. Right. And they're staring me down as I walk down. And then after the sacrament meeting, of course, just throngs of people, just quick little nudge. Like, thank you for saying something cool. Yeah. Just thank you. Which is, you know, and after that, to be honest with you, the entire tone of the meeting, it, it became very less militant and it became, I, I think a little more, you know, a little more accommodating the fact that this is a tough time for some people. Well, we also had a meeting with the bishop already preset. So we walk into this meeting and I don't even know this guy. Right. And, and he just sort of comes right out like, all right, what's going on, man? You know? And he was a little bit, a little bit stern and militant about it. I'm thinking, Oh man, you know, I've been at BYU for two and a half months and I'm already going to get my ecclesiastical endorsement ripped out. That I'm not, complicates I'm not even going to make you. it a semester, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, this has got to be a record. And I told him, like, I said, look, Bishop, 
Um, This is, I am not like an activist here, right? I'm not going to be ruining the Sunday school and ruining the testimony every week with my, you know, with some, you know, pitch that's, it's maybe it's just inappropriate. I just said, I'm just telling you that, yeah, it was tough. And I'm, and my, my testimony is, is I'm sort of all in and, and, um, but you know, I just want to tell people like it's, it's, if, if you're feeling like this is a tough day, you're not alone, you know? And, um, and they proceeded to, to then give us callings and he put me in with the youth and put uh, Margie and I think we were over a youth conference or something and, um, and ended up just being a great Bishop, you know, and I've been very lucky as you can tell, I tend to sometimes say, speak up when I probably shouldn't. I've, I have been very fortunate to always have priesthood leaders that, that have, I have never felt in my life that I have any type of my faith or my commitment to the church has ever been questioned. And that's a great blessing. And, and with, so anyway, I worked with this Bishop for a couple of years and just worked, he was f- phenomenal to work with. He was, you know, he really respected my views, didn't necessarily always agree with me, but so I ended up being really, really a good experience. And my experience is, is that we, you, you know, if, if you're, if you have intents of just trying to help and serve people, there is so much room in this church to, to work through that on your own terms and not have to worry about looking over your shoulder. That's just been my experience anyway. I love that story. And I love the reason you said you got up is because you recognize there were people that um, were wondering if this was their last day in church and wondering if anybody felt the way they did. And you just had the courage and maybe it's part of your privilege um, that you could say some things and then, and have a maturity of doing that and a station in the church because your prior service to be able to do that. Why maybe people with less privilege couldn't have done that. So I love the reason you did that. And to me, that's just a beautiful moment in that ward and in your relationship with that bishop. No, it really ended up being a great experience. And don't get me wrong. There are, there are still a lot of people in that ward who they, they still look at me with a little bit sideways, right? They're, they're a little concerned. But I, if I raise my hand in gospel doctrine, which I don't do a lot, you know, you can tell there's like this, uh, you know, but, um, you know, so there's a price to it. And I love yeah. your bishop put you to work with youth conference and the youth. And- yeah. Yeah, I really, and, I really, yeah, there is a price for it because you're on the encircle board. Talk, just tell us yeah. more about it. I know we want to talk about an email exchange as part of the policy or some email thoughts. Oh yeah. Let me do that. And then we'll go right. That'll lead right into encircle. Okay. So this is a nice, I'm glad you reminded me that I did bring this email in because this is the, this is the email that, so this is on, um, the, the email is sent. I have in front of me is November 9th. So if you remember this, this testimony experience was, was actually on, um, I think the sixth. Now, this is like a day after it, I guess. This is like the day after this church. And this is a friend of mine that we've been going back and forth with, just trying to understand how to react to this and just trying to get our head around what's going on and just trying to, you know, just trying to, we're trying to do the right thing, right? We're trying to figure out how we can um, understand what's happening and, and remain faithful, dedicated members of the church. And so we had a few back and forth, and this is the last email I sent to him. And I said, I'll just read the email. So this is where I am after reading your emails slash thinking further. Number one, Kurt to God. This looks like a train wreck. God to Kurt. Why does this surprise you? You should know better by now, Kurt. But we deserve better from our leaders. Either invite all to Christ or teach us clearly why all aren't invited. God, stop your complaining. Do you think you could do any better? 
when I said I call the weak things of the world or said that almost all called into leadership will struggle to lead, did you think I was lying to you? Have you not read the Doctrine and Covenants? Leaders were wrong all the time and long, and, and non-leaders are also wrong all the time. Why does this surprise you? Is it pride? Is it lack of faith? Is it jealousy? You should be more concerned with these questions. Why are, why are you both surprised and bothered by this? Either you believe that I'm aware of all that is going on and able to do my work or you don't. Questions, searching, concern for the vulnerable. These are all very good. Whining, being critical of leaders is never good. Stop whining and do something good for someone. Stop complaining that others may be harmed by a policy and focus your energy lifting others and shouldering burdens. Stop making me and my work so small and so ineffective and stop being so arrogant. Kurt, uh, okay. God, thanks. And yes, this is a sad day. Read the story of Enoch. I don't celebrate when the vulnerable feel pain and insecurity. When they feel unwanted, I weep but the capacity to love is tied to the capacity to weep. I will convert weakness into strength. The process is as important as the result and give your leaders a break. They are not evil or bad people. They are fighting for what they believe and what they value. They are trying to make the world a better place, but they make mistakes. They may assume things that they shouldn't assume. They may be too scared. Sometimes their age both helps and hurts the work, but this is, this applies to any age. They may be too unfamiliar with those that they are disadvantaged, that are disadvantaged by this. And now, Richard, I don't, I don't read that to say that I think the leaders were wrong and I think they you know, are right. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying those are my feelings at the time. And, um, and, you know, and, and I want to sort of be clear about that. I'm just telling people what I, I was just going through this mental process, right? Well, how does this work? What, what happens if they were wrong? Does that mean everything's wrong? And, you know, I came to the conclusion, like, you know what, I, wrong or right is not something I need to I, I'm probably never going to know that answer. And, but what I do know is that there's a difference between just sitting down and being traumatic, you're traumatized by it, by me, not by the people affected by it and getting out and doing something, right? If, if people are, if there's something I can do that maybe helps a little bit, get out and do something. That's, that's how, that was my takeaway from it. Um, I just, is that a style of you to write down your communication with God? Is that something you've done and to write notes um, like that? Or is that kind of a one-off? I don't do that a lot. I do have in my head, a lot of conversations with God that way, right? Like, you know, and, and sometimes you're like, wow, this is awesome. You know, thanks. And sometimes like, okay, this is, this is sort of a raw deal, God, you know? And so I don't, I mean, I, I, I have a, I would say that if you have me describe my relationship with, God and Jesus Christ. I'm not one of these people that like, oh yeah, it's like my brother. Right? I mean, I, I, I feel that God and, and Christ are so unknowable and so unreachable that it really is on just a different sphere. I mean, I, I very much feel drawn to the, um, to the, to the principle that they exist and that they are aware and that there's a plan here and that there's a purpose I re really resonates with me strongly, but I'm not one of these persons that really has this, what I consider to be a really personal to me. There's a, there's just a gulf, right? There's a gulf between the immortal and the mortal that I can never cross. And I just have to wait to get there. And so don't misunderstand that this casualness is not really very symptomatic of what I really believe, 
but yeah, I, I often will just sort of break into a, yeah, let's just sort of have a conversation about this. I love that. And I love, um, the idea that everybody connects with God in a different way. And some people may have what you describe you don't have. Um, that's right. And I, you're really good at honoring everybody's space, but I love the, I love, you know, maybe we'll link the podcast description to this very thing you wrote out because I just, it's beautiful. And there's, and you shared that with me a couple of years ago as you're rereading that. I remember how much it meant to me back then as I was trying to understand how the loving God that I believe in would allow sometimes really complicated things to happen. And so when I read that, I think of grace. Um, and I think of the grace you're extending to God, to our leaders, and to yourself in this whole process um, of just the complexity of doing the right thing in the right way with the right leaders. Well, I mean, it, I, I really like that. And I mean, fundamentally, I think Richard Bushman one time was asked, I really, I really enjoy reading Richard Bushman's work and it just a lot of the way he approached it really resonates with me. And he was being interviewed by the, the Pew Foundation once. And I watched this interview and if I'm remembering it correctly, um, somebody asked him, so you have all this crazy stuff in your church and your history and your theology. You know, I said the Book of Mormon musical was coming out. We're just pulling out all this, you know, just the quirky stuff that we have. And, so, you know, everything from priesthood restriction to polygamy to kolob to you know, on and on and on. And they asked him, what's the thing that you would struggle with the most? And he said, I think the thing I struggle with the most is whether or not there's actually a God. And in some respects, I think that's very profound because say what we want, you know, we, we can make the whole LGBTQ um, topic or issue, which is such a conundrum for a lot of us right now. If you solve that, there are still billions of people that are hundreds of millions or millions of people. I don't know what the number is that deal with unfairness and uncertainty and just horrible situations all the time. And this idea that how could God allow with, with perfect knowledge and perfect love and perfect and all power, how can he allow evil to exist, right? How can he allow for unfairness to exist? And that's sort of the fundamental question that will, will um, be in front of people's minds for the ages. And this is no different than that. If we solve this issue, it wouldn't solve all unjustness. It wouldn't solve all unfairness. It would just remove one of the many and something else would fall right into its place. And we will always have that with us. And that's just a question of, of like, with all that in front of you, do you still believe in God or not? And you have to make a choice. And there are fully rational ways to go either way. And you truly get to be as an agent and say, I have, makes a lot of sense to choose door one, makes a lot of sense to choose, choose door two. I'm choosing door one and choosing to believe. Talk about Encircle. We've got about 10 minutes left. I want to make sure we talk about Encircle. Talk about your spiritual and prompting to get involved in Encircle. We talked about before we started recording. Yeah, so I, I like to hike. Um, I hike quite a bit. And I um, this is like the Soldatna trip with the with the with uh, my mission dealing with um, the priesthood restriction question. I, I still vividly remember this. Uh, when I hike, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to you know, a lot of podcasts. I like, I love listening at the to same your, time. I love you to listen li to more than one. It, do you have the ability to listen to it? And no, okay. no, just, just checking. If you've got some superpowers, that would be pretty no, cool. I just, if you look at my podcast <laughs> list on my phone, there's like, you know, 15 <laughs> things of which you're like at the top, one of the top honored. Ones, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I was listening to a pot and I don't even remember which one it was. I, I, 
it, but I, but Tom Christofferson, um, the brother of Elder Christofferson was being interviewed. And I think, I think if I remember right, this was like a 14 mile hike. And so I, I listened to probably, I don't know, 14 podcasts on this hike. Uh, just very, but I still remember this one moment and, um, he mentioned that he, and he mentioned he's collaborating with, I can't remember if he said the young foundation or Barbara young or Steve young. I, I forget it's Barbara is, is the primary mover here, but Steve is also involved that they were collaborating to do, to provide sort of this home in Utah County that would be essentially provide a safe place for LGBTQ youth that were, were struggling and didn't have a safe place to go. And of course, the minute he said a safe place, it just, just my mind just peaked up because that I, I really, that really resonated with me after my experience with the YSA ward in Dallas. And I remember just thinking I need to find that place. And this wasn't too long after this whole 2015 policy thing. And I just remember thinking I need to find it. And so I jumped online and I was pretty sure that in circle, which was just coming together was it. And so I showed up on the first time they, they just bought this new house across from the Provi city, city center temple. And they, it needed a lot of refurbishment. And so I spent the entire day up in the, what's now the art room, pulling out nails really? out of the floor with, you know, four other people in BYU shirts and three release site presidents with BYU, you know, football shirt or, um, sports shirts. And, and then I went to an introductory thing in at Riverside country club yeah, right after that. I met you. I yeah. remember hearing your story there. Yep. And that's where I, I, that's where I sort of connect and started giving, I mean, I also donate uh, money to encircle. We do I donate money to encircle and that sort of got that started. And then, um, they also then had a training for people who just wanted to just be at the house. They, and they really, it's an extraordinarily well-run organization. And they, um, said they being Stephanie Larson said, look, if you're going to come in and be with these kids, you need to be trained. You need to know what to say and what not to say. And so I went to this training in um, Provo city offices and that's when I met Stephanie and Stephanie, one of her greatest gifts is, is, I mean, she's extraordinarily capable and um, great vision, very smart, but she also is very aware of the benefit of surrounding people around her that bring skills that she doesn't have. She's really talented at doing that. And um, I connected with her after this meeting and just said, Hey, look, just so you know, I, I was, you know, I've had all this experience as a lawyer at a big firm, but I also just spent six years as a general counsel in charge of anything that came through the pipe. And I said, if you ever need any free legal help or you need any, um, um, and if I can be of any help, just let me know. And she was very gracious. And sort of, frankly, immediately I started getting involved and provided just a lot of, of legal work to, to help get them started and to just what anything that they needed me to do, whether looking at policies or contracts or doing research on just laws that they had to be aware of. Um, and then I just started, um, like you volunteering, I went down and, and would, would spend time and just be at the house and make sure that the, the visitors had what they needed. And I would go down and clean toilets if they needed the toilets cleaned and, and do, do work on the house. Last time I was there a few weeks ago, I, I took three mouse mice that they caught and drove to a field 3.4 miles away and let them go. And then I let them go. That's right. We weren't, yeah, they wanted, they very much were very concerned that the, that the mice be 
went back to the wild and they, they did research and found out it has to be at least 3.4 miles away so that they don't return. And so I clocked to, to find a, a field 3.4 miles away. And, and then we spent five, I spent several hours cleaning out the weeds of the, the flower beds, you know, and, and, um, and Encircle is, you know, what I really drew me to Encircle is they have been so far very successful at creating safe place for kids to come and just sort of have a place to go and just be calm. Why is that needed? I think it's needed because some of these, and, and I say kids because it really is targeting kids. I don't say kids just because they're younger than me, but it, I think that, I think that a lot of these, um, these kids need to know they're not alone. And so it, it provides, and a lot of them feel very alone, but you can walk into a circle and, and there's a bunch of other, um, boys and girls around like you that, that, that accept you as you are. And it's just, it's nice to have a community. And a lot of them don't feel like they have a community in the church. Um, if they're members of the church and those that aren't. And so it provides this community with them that they can just be safe and they have people around them that accept them as the way they are. And I, I just think some people, we all need that. And, um, and circle is really effective at saying, look, we're going to be religion neutral here. If you want to maintain an active, um, participation in whatever church you're in, again, Utah County, predominantly members of, of our church, we will support you with that. And they make therapists available at almost no or little cost based on donations. And those therapists are trained to be able to support Either a, I want to maintain this worldview and religious connection, or I feel like I need to separate for my own health and they don't make the choice for them. And they're just really effective at being able to walk this really thin line between, um, being a home that if you want to be, remain an active member of the church, you can go there and feel comfortable. And if you're just angry at the church and you're mad and, um, and a lot of them feel very, um, uh, they feel, they feel not disappointed Just they feel, um, like they've just been rejected, right. That you also can go there and, 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 and it's okay. Right. You, you can go there. You don't have to fit into a certain mold. And I don't know how Stephanie has pulled it off. And the other, um, people really involved like Holly and Nina and, and Barbara, um, young, but they've pulled it off to where you can just go in there. You can feel comfortable and you don't have to fit a certain mold. And you can be safe and you can get access to some help and you can have opportunities to, to do, listen to speakers and have music and to do art and just all these things that just allow you to just relax and just be grateful for, to be alive and how beautiful the world is and how beautiful our brothers and sisters are and how quirky we all are and how we celebrate those quirks. I just love it. I think it's a great, it's a great vision. I want to reference um, an article you, rem it reminded me of an article we put together and the title of the article, Statement from Church Leaders on LGBTQ Questions, and it really took individual questions like, is, LG is it a choice? Can it change? And you were, um, Don and Deborah Coe were also on this project, so it's a few years old, but you were the one that really took it and and made it into this format with the question and a simple answer and then references to the church quotes and that article one place you can get to it, our listeners, is at listenlearnandlove.org forward slash articles. It's the first article there. It's one of the very best documents, and I think Encircle has probably even better documents. Just what are the latest church statements on all of these things that we've talked about? 
because I didn't know them. <laughs> yeah. And here I was starting to well, cancel. Well, it's sort of hard to find. And that's Deborah Coe. I mean, Deborah Coe. Deborah's kind of yeah, like she pulled all that together. Queen. Yeah, she was. That was awesome. Talk and, about two, and we'll probably need to come to a close. Just give us, um, um, and maybe you've done this already, the mission statement of Encircle. And I think you've said it without maybe saying the official statement. And just geographically, you're growing. And talk about just the, the vision for Encircle as it's geographically growing. Yeah. So a, a second point. So the first point, I think the vision is, of course, providing this safe place for um, our LGBTQ, you know, we, we say youth because that's still a very church word, right? Um, but, you know, our young men and women. It, it's also to provide resources for, frankly, church leaders, for parents in particular. You know, a lot of parents just, they just don't know what to do. And Encircle has done a, a really good job, I think, in collecting and producing materials. Agreed. That, yeah. It just, it gives parents an opportunity to just sort of take a deep breath. And can I go online to encircle and get those? Or I do think I go so. To the yeah. Store? There should be an do online library. I'm yep. calling them stores. Sorry, listeners. Yep. Yep. <laughs> resource. Yep. There's a, there's Homes. a resources page on encircle that has just great resources for parents and um, religious leaders. They also have most of them in paper yeah. form in their houses. And they have a, uh, there's a new, a newer house, a year old house in Salt Lake city. And then there's a house in St. George that will be opening in the spring. And the, I think the primary mission is to provide, of course, those support services. And then a second mission is to provide access to therapists to really protect kids that, you know, I mean, look at the suicide issue. We've all, you've heard a lot about that. And, and, and the encircle folks are just passionate to say, let's just get any, let's get access to any person we can. Let's just give them whatever support they need to, just to get them um, feeling good about who they are and wanting to live and really working hard to, to get that suicide rate down. And I, my opinion is they've been really influential and successful in doing that. And and then, you know, they're looking at some other cities. Lots of cities are approaching them now. Um, Logan, um, there's a couple of other cities that have said, we really want one of your houses. And, you know, what, what they really need, they love the volunteers. Anyone, please consider volunteering. And, but of course, they, you know, the more funding they have, the more they can do. And so there's always a good, be able to have a good use for anyone who's looking for an opportunity to, to, you know, provide some of your access to, um, an organization that really is making our communities a better place. I mean, Encircle, I think, should be, you know, at the top of the list of what you consider. It's just so there's opportunity to participate with funding, opportunity to participate with um, volunteering, and it's it's been. I've really, I've really, I've loved being a part of it. I'm how on the board you, now. How long have you been on the board? I've been on the board for a year and a half. That I'm the board chair now, and to be clear, what that means, you know, the, uh, you know, a couple of the older, more senior members of the board. Um, Holly Alden, although I don't think that's uh, um, uh, Thorsum and Barbara Young have been along me and they are just amazing. And they are so um, talented at, at, at pushing um, and circle forward. And that we have some newer members of the board as well. Um, after me, they, they shouldn't be wasting their time doing, making sure the board meetings are happening and that the minutes are maintained and that, that we're, we're doing all that we need to do to make sure that the management team is protected and doing things right. And so that's why I stepped in to be the chair, not because I, I'm actually the one that, that yeah, they, that makes sense. Yeah. They, they, they shouldn't be wasting their time. To do they're, they're way too important um, to be doing other things within circle. And combined with the fact that I have just 25 years of 
experience running boards that it's just, it's easier for me to do. What a great fit. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been a great experience. I really enjoy it. And I, I think it's a really bright future for, um, for that organization, for the community as a whole. Um, Stephanie Larson's one of my heroes. I love the way you pay tribute to her and what she's done. And I have a great deal of respect for Stephanie. We've had Mayor John Pike from St. George on the podcast. He's, he's excited that St. Circle's coming to his community and St. George is mayor of St. George. He kind of talks about in this podcast, this, this is an active LDS guy. He says, I want to be the mayor for everybody. Yeah. And I love that mantra and that vision that he shares, including LGBTQ member within his community. It's, it's a great, it's a fantastic organization. They just, it's, they, I've just been really impressed with the quality um, and, and just the, their desire to just help and serve and support people. I love, I circled what you said about on your hike to yourself, don't whine about it, go do something. And I just think that's part of um, the way often service occurs. I think in our church, we can get called to do something and it shows up on LDS tools, like being in charge of youth conference in your ward. Maybe that didn't show up in LDS tools because <laughs> of short-term calling. But then I think we have these other th- um, ways we serve that are impression based, being close to the spirit, and then we act on them. And I, and everybody does that in their own way, in their own lane, and it's led you to where you are. And I think that's what I encourage our listeners: is you, you know, everybody needs. Don't look at the way I'm doing it as a podcast host bringing guests on, or the way Kurt is doing it. You could do it just like we are, but I just think part of the beauty of this space is we all act on you know, the impressions on what we can do and the, and the circle we can influence. And don't be discouraged if your circle isn't grandiose. It's just one heart at a time. And that testimony you give or that kind comment may save a life. And circle is saving lives. There are people that have not completed suicide um, because of what in circles done. And, and But you can do that perhaps just on an individual one-on-one. So everybody you know, does this, I think, in their own way, in their own terms, but don't underestimate just changing one heart and what you can do for one person. That's how it happens. Any closing comments, Curtis? Um, no, I, I, I was really, I thought what you said was really important, just said, and very thoughtful. And just what the thing that sprung into my mind was I started going down to Encircle and sitting at the house and wanting to you know, sort of work with and mentor the, the, the kids that showed up. And you know what? That just wasn't my skill. It, it really wasn't. I wasn't very good at it. I, 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 it wasn't something that I think really provided a lot of value. And yet that is sometimes far more important than, you know, being on the board and making sure all the trains are running on time. And, and yet I'm much better at that. Cool. And so I think that what you said is really important is that the important thing is, is I, I really firmly believe that if you go to the Lord and say, look, I want to, I want to be involved in, um, in, in contributing to the good of the community. And I want to use my skills. I want to use the gifts that I have either been given or have developed. You're, you're, you're going to get the direction. The Lord is going to be very, it's not going to be hiding the ball either. It's going to be pretty clear to you over time. This is really where you're going to um, do the most good. And, and the more individual and unique it looks to you, the more I think the Lord's behind it. And I think that is so important for, and, and, and we have no way of valuing 
And the person who just shows up in a circle and sits and just talks to the people coming in for half an hour are doing far more than the four hours, you know, I'll put behind making sure that all the board books are, are right. Right. And it is, I, I love the idea of our, of our religion that we should, and president Nelson is really focused on this from my impression is that we really need to go to the Lord ourselves and find out what should I do and get it from the Lord. Don't get it from a podcast or even from a Bishop. You, you know, the Bishop asked you to help, help out. We all need to help each other, but go to the Lord and say, what can I do? What, you know me better than anybody. Where can my individual strengths and skills be used best? And the Lord will put it to use. That's my experience anyway. Love that. Um, I'm just going to close with, before I thank Curtis for being on the podcast, I'm back in his YSA ward and I'm LGBTQ and I'm hearing what he said about, we need you. And I love the way you talked about when that seat's not there, um, I'm worse off because I need you in my life. And we both, Curtis and I recognize uh, many of our LGBTQ members step away and we honor that. But those of you, I hope you each need to find your path, but I look at um, I, those empty seats that represent those of you that aren't with us and we're not passing judgment on you. I want to be careful there. We miss you and we're worse off without you here and those that are able to stay. And um, I think a lot of the responsibilities with us in the church to create better space like Curtis is sharing so that you feel welcome and you feel like you belong and the principles that he taught in his YSA ward, I hope we can better implement Ben Shalati once at a, he's a gay Latter-day Saint who's active in the church, celibate. I ha- went to a a training where he taught as, when he was an intern at LDS Family Services to local leaders. And a couple local leaders says, what can we do? What is the church doing to address this? And Ben, in a moment of clarity, he later made this blog post, says, you're the answer. You're just, you're what we need to do is at the local level. So help people feel like they belong, they're needed. Um, recognize the difficult role, but feel like that their contributions to the body of Christ is what's needed. So Curtis Anderson, his wife, Margie, who's here, what a great team they are. And thank you for all the work you're doing in Circle and your personal ministry and what you're doing professionally at BYU Law School. Um, Twitter occasionally mentions what a good professor you are. And um, so that's a good thing that I see sometimes. So thank you for joining us and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler.